Did anyone say that in English? I didn't hear about his voice. <clears throat> so what page have we reached? We didn't go too far from that uh, <clears throat> that quotation on page thirty-four and thirty-five, and uh, we started with what is mental review meditation. You know what mental review meditation is now, right? 
Right? <laughs> okay. Mental review meditation sometimes sounds like uh, you're just uh, going over something in your mind and that's it. Okay. But it's more than that. It has, uh, for, for anything to be called meditation, it must, there must be, there must be a level of, of uh, focus going on. Okay. And the purpose of meditation is to reach a state of absorption in the, in the uh, object or the subject that you're, uh, that you're meditating on, that you're reviewing. So mental review meditation is the lighter of the meditation because the mind is very busy, but it's very busy towards one particular uh, subject. So it's more, uh, it's the, uh, <clears throat> after you've read, after you've uh, heard a particular uh, teaching, then you have to do a mental review, sort of remind yourself, refresh your mind as to what you've learned. But this type of mental review meditation that he's talking about is trying to uh, uh, trying to arrive at a particular uh, realization, trying to arrive at a particular conviction, rather. So what you're, you are reviewing here is reviewing uh, so you, you take a, the, you're given a particular idea, you, you, you recall the idea and you analyze the idea. Okay. And then you will come up with a conclusion and you analyze that again. You come, up with that, you come up with another conclusion and you analyze that until you come up with some sort of final decision or final conf conviction about, about the idea. <clears throat> All right, we'll start at the very beginning. Uh, how is each packed into the text? Thank you. <clears throat> so page 35 at the bottom. How is, uh, how is each packed into the text? Every, every single thought expressed by the holy words of the Buddhas and in the commentaries which explain them was uttered for the sole purpose of helping disciples to attain the state of Buddhahood. For you to even continue reading further after reading this, first of all you must have either an, an, uh, an interest in what Buddhahood is or uh, the best is to already know what Buddhahood is and for you to actually aspire to it. And that will make you continue to read on. If you have no idea of what Buddhahood is, you have no, uh, you have no interest in, in knowing what it is, you have no aspiration for it, then you don't want, you don't want to read any further. And if you continue to read any further, without having uh, uh, at least an aspiration, a desire, or curiosity to find out what is Buddhahood, then you will have wasted your time reading the book. 
you have wasted your time reading anything that supposedly will help you obtain that state. And if you make it into something like a, a like like a, some sort of a, a social custom that you're following, social custom that you're trying to keep up with, that might even give you some sort of a, 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 um, psychological problem later on. And to achieve this state, one must first verse himself or herself in the two causes that bring it about. We call them method and wisdom. And then we talked about that a little bit last time. The main elements of these two causes are also two. The desire <clears throat> to attain Buddhahood for the sake of all living beings and correct view. And that's basically re re repeating the same things. Method is anything to do with the desire to achieve Buddhahood for the sake of all living beings. And meth and wisdom and correct view are the same thing. Now to develop these attitudes in the stream of one's mind, a person must first gain an absolute disgust for all the apparent good things of the life he lives uh, he himself is spending in the circle of birth. And we talked about that also. What does it mean to have absolute disgust for all the apparent good things of life? Does it mean that a good practitioner, a good Buddhist, a good, a good spiritual person must go around uh, very depressed, always holding a, a, a pout in the, in the face, you know, well, this is disgusting, this is disgusting, <laughs> and now they are spiritual? <laughs> hmm? <clears throat> so, and it says here the apparent good things in life. I think this uh, this part here. I have to make an emphasis since I made the same as I did last time. Apparent good things. That means that <clears throat> as we were discussing uh, discussing uh, about what is the nature of a being. The na uh, where, wherever you find a phenomenon that, is, that you can properly call a being, it naturally, it's by, its, by, its own, by the very nature of being a being, wants good things and wants to avoid bad things. So there's nothing wrong with wanting good things. And that's why the word apparent good thing here is put there. So the good things that we think that we have, that we are enjoying, are apparent good things. And the reason that we end up suffering, the reason that we end up disappointment, disappointed, is because they're not really good. They're only apparently good. So, basically, you can also say that developing an absolute disgust for, for the apparent good is all, also mean uh, to make a real search, a real endeavor to find good things and stop fooling around, stop playing around with things which are apparently good. Stop, stop trying to gain satisfaction from something that cannot give you satisfaction. Okay. And everything, not just the... the not, and if you are, if you are uh, serious about it, it's not just the apparent good things that you have, must have discussed uh, for. It's, it's more the things that create apparent good things the attitudes, the behavior, whatever it is that is connected with creating apparent good things, you must have a disgust for. 
And that's when you have true renunciation. So you say a real renunciant is somebody who's, who's uh, uh, really, really bent on finding good things, really good things. It's not somebody who's turned away from good things. It's somebody who's on the search, a real search for the real good, you could say. So don't be afraid of the word renunciation. Don't be afraid of <clears throat> having to develop renunciation. Renunciation doesn't mean, okay, now give up on, give up on good things whatsoever. Okay? It means now really make a search for it. And don't uh, fool yourself acquiring what are just apparent good things. Stop playing with, stop playing. Okay? You're like a little kid, you play with uh, apparent uh, cars, apparent bicycles, apparent trucks, apparent uh, uh, house. You play with things that are they're not real houses. Okay? Until you grow up and you get yourself a real car, a real house. Okay? So we have to grow up. We have to grow up. So that's what renunciation means. Grow up. The good things you want, it really exists. So go after it. Stop playing with things that, that, that are not real good things. And stop, and stop being disappointed when they, when they disappoint you, when they don't uh, satisfy you. You can't expect that toy car to take you to, the, to, 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 uh, to, to any destination. And continue, continue. Uh, should I, I'll just read this because we went over it already. Suppose you never managed to develop a desire to get free of the cycle of life yourself. Suppose you never reach a renunciation which is complete in every respect. It will be impossible for you to develop what we call great compassion. And a renunciation that is complete in every respect is a renunciation, is a state of mind where not only do you have a disgust for all the apparent good things in life, you have faith that there exist real good things, and then that real faith and that uh, uh, makes you want that real good thing. Okay. So if you never manage to, to develop a, a renunciation, a desire to get free from the cycle of life, you can't really say that you really have compassion for others. If you don't understand what suffering is from your own perspective, you can't really understand it from others' perspective. You can't really say you understand how others are suffering. And that's why, uh, uh, was it Marie Antoinette? Marie, yeah, Marie Antoinette who said, uh, let them eat cake. Because uh, in, in her own world, she couldn't understand why people were, you know, uh, making making a riot, just making a riot for bread. Okay, as far as she's concerned, okay, you can have bread, have cake. Okay. <laughs> okay. So she couldn't really, you could say, in that in that sense, she couldn't understand uh, really understand. She couldn't she couldn't have compassion for those people who were rioting for bread. She 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 doesn't. She does not understand what it is not to have bread or not to have anything to eat. Hmm? 
Now, it doesn't mean that you have to force yourself to experience every, every level of suffering and then understand what suffering and then understand what others are going through. Whatever, whatever state of dissatisfaction you're going through, that is suffering. Until you really stop and look at it for what it is, you will not be able to really develop the, the state of mind that wants to turn away from it, turn away from its causes, turn away from having to experience it in the future. So, because it is impossible to develop what we call great compassion, the desire to liberate every li other living being from the, from the cycle, this makes renunciation a without which nothing. Now, in order to achieve the Buddha's body or form, I think that's what the part that we've uh, uh, left at. Uh, the Buddha's body or form, a person must first gather together what we refer to as the collection of merit. This gathering depends principally on the desire to achieve Buddhahood for the sake of every living being. To achieve the Buddha's Dharma body, a person must have the collection of wisdom. Here the most important thing is to develop correct view. All the most vital points of the path then have been packed into the three principal paths and made into one instruction which can be carried out by students. These words of advice imparted directly to our precious Lord by a gentle voice himself are therefore very special indeed. I remember we stopped here, we talked a little bit about the, <coughs> the Buddha's body of form. Uh, once you achieve, I uh, remember at the end of the teaching we uh, do a dedication, and dedication says by the May I achieve the two bodies, right? Okay. So the two bodies that 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 are <clears throat> that you're aspiring to achieve are the Buddha's body of form and the Buddha's body of wisdom, Dharma body. The Buddha's body of form is what allows the Buddha to have a relationship with others, with or, or in this case, better to continue to have a relationship with others. And then for others to, have, to continue to have, to have that relationship with you. Okay. The wisdom body is solely for the Buddha and other Buddhas. Unless you're a Buddha, you cannot really have a relationship with, uh, with, with the Dharma body. Or unless you're a very highly realized being. Okay. You don't, we can't really have a relationship with the Dharma body. So the, Buddha, the Buddha's body of form is what allows the Buddha to continue to meet with sentient beings and for sentient beings to continue to have a relationship with, with them after reaching uh, full enlightenment. I mean, I have a question about that. Mm -hmm. why, why is it not that, why can't you encounter Buddha's form? You can't? Yeah, well, you can't, why can't I right now? Oh, you probably, you probably have. And you don't know it. Now, the Buddha's form body, uh, there are uh, two kinds of Buddha's form bodies. There's one that is, uh, is called the supreme form body, the supreme emanation. 
Right. It's the one that is, and that one which is called a supreme emanation is really what you might call the one who has the career to appear in a world and to make the appearance of this, uh, turning the Dharma or bringing the Dharma to, into a world. And that emanation makes the declaration, I am a Buddha. Yeah. The other form bodies don't necessarily make the declaration that I'm a, I'm a Buddha. They just uh, see a need for, for and, and the, uh, the supreme emanation body comes into the world for the world. The other ones, they are for, for specific individuals or for specific groups. Other Buddha's form body that is not the supreme form body could uh, could be any uh, appearance. Got it. But yeah. Mm. Mm. The book you're holding could be an emanation of the Buddha. Right. Would um, so then? Am I wrong to think that meeting a Buddha and then you know appearing like what I think a Buddha should look like as opposed to a book? Am I wrong to think that that would be uh, then the best thing for me to see right now? Like if, if I have an idea, like oh, I'd, I'd be much better off if instead of seeing a statue of Buddha, mm. or Buddha appearing as a statue of Buddha, mm. Buddha, but I would actually see a Buddha appearing in a way that I would say, oh, that you know. I'm oh yeah, definitely. Sure, you, I'm pretty sure that's a Buddha. Yeah, you you definitely would like to would like to have that. Happen. I, I personally think I'd be better off in that case. Yeah, you would be better. I have more faith that Buddha is a real uh, mm -hmm. goal to achieve. Oh yeah. But then, all right. So then. Um, um, so if that's correct, then why wouldn't the Buddha appear in that form, as opposed to a book? Uh, the Buddha didn't choose to appear as a book because the Buddha think because because I felt like uh, I should appear as a book. Actually, the Buddha is, uh, is seeking to appear in his full form. It's just that we don't have the 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 the, the kind of eyes that could see such a form. We don't have the karma to encounter such a form. And even if the Buddha appears as a book in front of you, and, you, and you're seeing a book, if you have the capacity to see that it's not really a book, you will see a Buddha. Right. Um, it's, okay, I, I understand that's, that's, a good, that's the way of explaining it, but... Um, mm -hmm. I, I, is, is what you're trying to... Because I, I kind of think the same thing sometimes mm. before analyze, analyzing it that, um, you know, we all want to be able to look outside the window and a particular type of being appears, the same kind of being that when you meditate, you deliberately meditate on a being entirely made of light appearing just for your benefit. So we'd all like to walk around and have this kind of being appear right in front of us miraculously, all made of light, just for our benefit, and then, oh, my doubts are all cleared up, you know? Mm -hmm. This is the actual Buddha appearing before me. I'll never say anything, you know, bad to anyone again, and I'll mm -hmm. spend all the rest of my life practicing. So, so if that kind of event happened, it mm -hmm. would cause a great sea change in the behavior of the being that saw that particular um, e event. Mm -hmm. So why don't Buddhas just show up for everyone like that miraculously so that we all totally change our behavior and spend all our time meditating and doing wonderful things for each other? For each other? Ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Is that anything close to what you're thinking? Yeah, that's, that's right. That's a good... Uh, I'll, I'll accept that as being... 
Part B of my question. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes. I think is it not that the Buddha is not appearing, but because it's not they're there. It's just we're not having the perceptions to see. So it has nothing to do with what the Buddha is doing. It has everything to do with what our mind is doing. Mm, not in yeah. They're already there. It's not that they're not there. It's that we don't have mm. haven't developed that karma or whatever it is that mm. permits us to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, that is that is that is the explanation that is given. Oh. Yeah, and well, maybe uh, it's not satisfying. For some yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but what's the second type of body? Said so one is supreme form, and the other that um, for individuals or different groups. What is that one called? Oh, we just call emanation body. Okay. We have emanation body and supreme emanation body. <clears throat> well, I'll, I'll, we'll say some more about it as we continue. Right. <clears throat> There's no way to turn your mind to spiritual practice unless you have renunciation from the very first. And there's no way for this practice to serve as a path of the greater way unless you have the desire to become a Buddha for the sake of every living being. And there is no way to rid yourself totally of the two obstacles unless you have correct view. And we talked about the two obstacles. Remember? One obstacle is called uh, uh, nirvana or freedom obstacle. An obstacle that prevents you from achieving freedom. An obstacle that prevents you from uh, leaving uh, samsara behind altogether. And the other obstacle is called uh, knowledge obstacle. It's, uh, it's the obstacle that prevents you from knowing or from gaining omniscience. And that is the one quality of the Buddha's Dhamma body that really uh, distinguishes the Buddha from, uh, from uh, other forms of enlightenment. Is the state of omniscience. Only Buddhas have omniscience. And interestingly enough, <clears throat> The obstacle that prevents omniscience requires correct view, but it needs correct view to be uh, imbued with bodhicitta in order for that to become omniscience. And we talked a little bit about that. Why should uh, great compassion, which is an emotion, be an, uh, such be the very catalyst that makes uh, the pursuit of wisdom into omniscience. If there isn't that, uh, if there isn't this emotion of great compassion, bodhicitta, your uh, you will gain correct view, but that correct view will not become omniscient. Omniscience. I think uh, a few of you gave some answers to that. Do you remember what you said? I remember what I said. You know, what, you said, what did you say? Um, um, <coughs> actually, you know, I, I think I forgot what I said. You forgot what you said? <laughs> <laughs> Does anyone remember what he said? <laughs> I think that it was that it strengthens you. 
Yeah, but, but that it's sort of like developing compassion for Chita is just sort of a you're, something you're exercising in the mind. Um, a muscle. Somebody sent a muscle. I think she was sitting over there. <laughs> She's not here anymore. <laughs> I read a uh, oh, oh, long, 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 long time ago, very long time ago, way before you were born, some of you, <laughs> uh, that somebody was describing bodhicitta as energy. It is the energy that takes you to enlightenment. Yeah. Maybe in that sense, that's what um, Enchila was referring to, bodhicitta is like a muscle. Okay. But... It is uh, an energy, it is a force, it's a power that, that transforms correct view into omniscience. And it's also because it is focusing on every living being. Because it is focusing on every living being, it is aspiring to know the minds of every living being. It is aspiring to know the conditions of every living being. It is aspiring to know what will work for each living being. So, bodhicitta is what transforms uh, correct view into omniscience, in, that, in things that it makes you become knowledgeable about everything because you are interested in everyone. And because everyone is different, they have their own kind of, kind of disposition, so you need to know what path will lead each individual into, into uh, Buddhahood. Not only what path will help each individual reach Buddhahood, but what path will help each individual reach whatever uh, aspiration that being has. If that being has, uh, aspires to reach just some sort of heaven, you know exactly what path this being must take to achieve that kind of particular heaven. If it, that being only wants to achieve uh, uh, Nirvana, then you know what path will help this being reach only Nirvana. Okay? So you know every everything about every path for each being. So that's a lot of things to know. So I just want to verify this in my own mind. Um, huh. So the, having, the, um, having that supreme bodhicitta, mm. the, the Buddha is able to um, give whatever person it is, no matter what it is that they're aspiring to, that causes to achieve that. Yeah. That desire, that mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think this is where we <coughs> really reached last time. Once you have gained some facility in the three principal paths, Everything you do becomes a spiritual practice. If your mind is not filled with these three thoughts, then everything you try leads you nowhere further than the same old circle of birth. And as the great, greatest steps of Buddhahood says, suppose you try to perform some kind of virtuous deeds, but you have yet to find that special antidote that destroys your tendency to crave for the good things in this circle, circling life. And whenever you read this, I want you to immediately interpret it, not as, because the, the, the reason why it's difficult 
or we have uh, uh, yeah we have a difficulty in truly developing renunciation is because it seems it's against what is the what is what you might call the very nature of being it seems to be telling you don't don't go after happiness that's what it seems to be saying and who wants not to be happy is it not the reason the, the, I mean you picked up this book because you want to be happy and the book is telling you don't be happy throw the book away <laughs> who wants that okay and then when we when we, when we become convinced that's what being spiritual means then we we cling on to suffering thinking that it's a spiritual thing to do and we especially avoid happy situations we avoid happy thoughts because we think we are being spiritual and then some part of our some part in our mind is telling you you are absolutely crazy for doing this but you're not listening to me and you push that mind away and it doesn't lead to anywhere except depression okay and the only reason that we when you so when you read this giving up the tendency to crave for good things immediately translate that as to mean uh, uh, give up the tendency to crave for what is apparently good okay so far the only thing that we have encountered is what we think is what is apparently good and what test do you have that is just apparently good because eventually we end up being disappointed uh, I remember, uh, I guess the first time I actually bought something with my own money. I saved up for it, I saved up for it, I, and there was that thing, you know, uh, was teasing me, I'll bring you happiness, I'll, I'll bring you bliss, I'll make you, uh, I'll make you the happiest person on the, on, in, the, in, the, in the planet. And I saved for it, and finally I got it, and I got it, and I was waiting for that bliss, and it, it was like, <laughs> It was gone, and it, and I was so disappointed. <laughs> and and a few more, a few thousand more, and and there's, there's still that part in my mind that still thinks, you know, I, maybe I, I I didn't get it, I I didn't uh, play with it correctly, or I didn't uh, uh, hold it right in my hands, or. I didn't carry it correctly. <clears throat> so immediately that's what you should think of. The special antidote that destroys our tendency to crave for apparent good things in the circling life. You have, <clears throat> you have yet to succeed in that meditation where you've analyzed all the drawbacks of the circle of life using all the various reasons we've set forth above. And this is really saying, really look at life. Really look at life. Is it really, the, I mean, not life in terms of like a cosmic existence kind of thing, but you know, the kind of life that we have, the kind of life that we have right now. Really look at it. Don't throw things on it. The ice cream doesn't taste good. That's not what they're trying to tell you. 
does the ice cream really taste good? Okay, that's the, that's, that's the thing. And it doesn't mean I don't, don't ever eat ice cream ever, ever again because, uh, you know, stay away from the good things of life. Okay, that's ice cream. Suppose, too, that you still haven't been able to investigate the meaning of no-self-nature. And this, we have to really spend some time uh, with this when we get there, okay? No-self-nature. Because it, it is, I have to say, as far as the West is concerned, this is really foreign. And the reason that and there, there, there is an historical, cultural reason why this term is what is the Buddha used. No self. Okay. Because there was a spiritual movement way before the time of the Buddha. Where there was, a, where, when the, where there was a, a, a intensive investigation and also intensive uh, search for a, a self. And there were a lot of speculations about self in many different ways. There's, this, there's a lower self, there's a higher self, there's a middle self. A lot of, the kind of, a lot of uh, uh, things that came out, a lot of philosophical uh, uh, terms that came out, a way of expressing, a way of, of, of sort of like pointing to, to what we were experiencing and how we were experiencing it. And there was this ultimate conclusion about a self. And it's not, so far it has nothing to do with what we, uh, as far as the Western culture is concerned, the Western philosophical, uh, 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 what do you want to call it, the striving is concerned, it has nothing to do with it. <coughs> okay. So sometimes we hear, the, the trans, we see the translation, no soul. And that, was, that is a completely different uh, approach. In the West, what we call the soul is, it has, already has its own philosophical you know, uh, uh, thoughts and reasons and meaning behind it. It's the, word, the, the word that we use for the word soul and the concepts that we put behind it has nothing to do with what they're referring to as self within, within the context uh, where the Buddha uh, gave that term. So the Buddha wasn't saying that there is no soul. Okay. And here already, uh, as we, uh, we're dis dis discussing, we have, we have a lot of discussions in the car coming over, <laughs> about soul. There was a discussion about soul. Do, an uh, do animals have soul? Are there some humans going around without souls? So that's a completely different idea of what, the, uh, what they're refer, referring to as no self. So don't, don't think that they're the same. Okay? Try to really understand, at least the, should get an understanding as to the uh, social background, the cultural background uh, of that term, to really start to understand what, what is it that, that you may be experiencing that you are aware of that they were trying to point to. So suppose too that you have still haven't been able to investigate the meaning of no self nature, as you should, using the, analysis, the, the analytical type of wisdom. 
And let's say further that you still lack any familiarity with the two types of desire to reach Buddhahood for every living being. This is the two types of desire to reach Buddhahood. I thought there was only one. Part, yeah, type, part one type, two, uh, two flavors. <laughs> so what does it mean by two types of desire to reach Buddhahood for the every living being? What are these two types of desire to reach Buddhahood? For every, two types that have the same goal to reach enlightenment for all, every living being. Yeah. The two vehicles? The two vehicles, you think? Which yeah, two types two of desire, the desire to do it quickly, very quickly. And the desire to, the, the, the bodhisattva career versus the tantra career. The tantra career is a bodhisattva career. Well, it, it, right, but it's differentiated from the three countless eon bodhisattva. Mm. You mean, so you mean uh, the sutrayana, sutrayana and tantrayana? Yeah. Uh, that's what you think. I'm not sure that's what he means. Yeah, the two types. Sometimes, I think I'm wrong. <laughs> the two types <laughs> of desire. Is it like aspiring and uh, engaging? Oh, it's engagement yeah, yeah. yeah. and inspiration. Yeah, <laughs> that's far better. <laughs> so. Aspiring and engaging. Okay. Aspiring is what uh, I think you could say one that is more uh, dealing with the emotional aspect. And engaging, in, of course, well, engage. Let the emotion carry you, make you act. Okay. So you can have the emotional aspect where you have a uh, it is possible to have a sincere desire to reach Buddhahood for the sake of living beings. Or you can say you can have a sincere desire for everyone to, to uh, uh, not experience suffering any longer. Just to have the emotion and yet not act upon it. It's just like when you are watching TV and then there's this news about this uh, awful event that happened somewhere on the planet in some country and you have a desire for, the, for them not to, to continue to experience this suffering, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you are necessarily engaged in doing something about it. So this, someone can have the desire to reach Buddhahood for every living being, and yet not be engaged in any action that will bring that about. Okay. So you can look at the aspiring emotional highest of Yeah, doing something that actually actually will actuate that, that state. If you happen to do a few good deeds this way towards some particular holy object, you might get some good results, but only because of the object's power. And, and remember this. <laughs> yeah, this might confuse us when you get to the uh, wisdom when you uh, go into wisdom, maybe, I don't know how many, a few years later. <laughs> if you happen to do a few good deeds this way towards some particular holy object, you might get some good results, but only because of the object's power. Otherwise, everything you've done is simply the same old source of suffering. And you come back round and around the round of rebirth. (laughs) 
Now, there's something that you should uh, <clears throat> have in, uh, get from this. The round of rebirth. It's not the same thing as saying that, uh, you know, especially for those of you who have, uh, have familiarity with this already and, and, and uh, have your mind gone along the direction of developing renunciation to some degree, and then you encounter someone who loves life and who's uh, not into necessarily any spirituality, and you can't really argue with them about their life not being... Uh, if, they, if they say they're enjoying their life, I mean, what, what are you going to tell them? It's, it's an illusion. You're not really enjoying your life. You think you're enjoying it. You're really suffering. It's very difficult to try to convince them on that. Okay. So, uh, this is not... Uh, this is... This is not saying that the good things don't happen in life. And it's not to say that don't enjoy those good things that happen in life. That's not what renunciation is, uh, uh, is telling you. So renunciation is, is sort of saying, uh, uh, I'm, I'm going to be very harsh here <laughs> to that person. <laughs> renunciation is saying, if you really enjoy life, and, you, and if, if, you cannot, if that person cannot in any way really appreciate what in renunciation is talking about if you really present it in a, the way it's supposed to be presented. You could tell the person is a hypocrite. The person is not really in, the, the person doesn't really enjoy the good things of good things. If the person really enjoyed good things, if really the person really appreciated good things, then the person should try every means, every uh, every uh, 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 go after every means possible to make sure that they have it to make sure that they continue to have good things. You understand? I don't get that. You don't get that? You mean no. keep the apparent good things or, the, or things that are not just apparently good? No, you mean uh, the average Joe or Jennifer. Right. So they should be... Is, it, is the it an average Joe? Jennifer? Doesn't, the average Joe or Jennifer, right? Uh, question. <laughs> there are certain people who, who I've met and you've met Right? Mm -hmm. Not Buddhists. They, they don't know anything about the Buddhist path. They're not interested in the Buddhist path. And they seem to have, they seem to not have excess attachment to things. They don't seem to get particularly angry. They seem to be content with what they have. And in a certain sense, they're living like a renunciate. They have no clue mm -hmm. about the, the teachings. But they would say, you know, I'm, I'm perfectly happy in my life. They accept that things come and go. They accept that whatever the ice cream cone will not give them pleasure forever. They not only accept it and understand it, but that they then extract the joy from the momentary pleasure that they have it with it, mm -hmm. understanding that it will cease. Mm -hmm. So in a certain sense, they're not living, they're not grasping to things, expecting them to bring continual pleasure. They understand that there's an ebb and flow, and that they're, and they're, they're okay with it. They just don't, for whatever reason, I really know people like this, they just don't seek a, a source of pleasure that will be lasting, they, they accept the ephemerality of it. And to tell them that they're hypocritical in any way is, is, is wrong because, because they're not, because they're not necessarily grasping. You mean, if, these, they, these are people who if are, they suddenly lost everything that makes them happy, they would be content also? If they suddenly, well, 
Yes, because these people, actually, I've known, yeah, as they get older, mm -hmm. it's like, okay, well, I've lived this very good life, and I'm going to die, and I feel okay about that, and I don't think anything will happen after I die, you know, mm -hmm. I'm an atheist, that's okay. No, 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 we're not talking about the same person here. You're talking about some holy, some holy being here. No, no, no. I'm that's no, I'm talking about people, I, there are people I know who, you know, they, for whatever reason, things don't get them too upset, they understand that things don't bring permanent pleasure, mm -hmm. they understand they're going to age. Oh, that's not. good, that's good. And, and, and maybe, as what you're saying, is maybe they are a holy being, right? Mm -hmm. But in this particular existence, they're focused on helping others, they're focused on being an example of, of someone who doesn't have no, 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 that's, that's not the example I'm talking about. I'm talking about when, when you get into your, uh, uh, what's called that, evangelical uh, uh, mood, Right. Especially when you're beginning, and this is making a lot of sense for you, and you want to share the good news with everybody. Right. And you encounter those people who, who interpret when you say, when you talk about renunciation as, wait a minute, life is good. Right. Life is good. I mean, right. that's their immediate reaction when you're trying to explain that. Oh, you mean not the people who, who actually are living I'm not talking about life people where they are content with it. Uh, I mean, I mean uh, you're talking about a holy being here. Okay. Somebody who's... who's I mean, are you people hearing what he just said? <laughs> Somebody who who's living a good life, you know, has good parents and then good career and then they help no, here I, and there. I, I, I hear what he's saying. I know mm -hmm. people like that too, yeah. I think. I mean, they are, if something comes up, they lose their job, they do suffer, mm -hmm. but then they rally, you mm -hmm. know, and say, yeah, lots of people have lost their job, I'm not the only one, mm -hmm. and, you know, I'll take this step and this step, maybe I'll be educated. I'm not talking about those people. You're I'm not talking the about the person who makes the argument that you know. Yeah, well, that life good. is good. Well, then I would cite all those examples say. that Arya Deva cites about why they're not. They, they don't say you know that they don't, no. these people uh, are these people saying that life is good. No, life has everything. In it. Okay, I'm talking about somebody who says life is good. That's different. Okay. Yeah, that's different. Sorry. <laughs> You're talking about some some holy being who's. Uh, who has achieved a great level of realization. Okay. Talk about someone who, when they hear about renunciation, when they hear an explanation about renunciation, and renunciation is talking about how there's suffering, especially the word suffering, when you present it to someone. And they say, wait a minute, no, life is good. That's the immediate reaction. See, these kinds of, of reasoning that, they, that you hear are the kind, same kind of reasoning that you probably, like you said, you probably used to have in your mind. And they have different levels of subtleties. Okay? If you aspire to the real good, what is preventing you from seeing yourself 
seeing yourself doing only those activities that will get you to the real good, is some level of that thought is still in your mind, life is good. Why should I give, give this up? Right? Why should I give this up? And almost to the point where you might see yourself, okay, I'll pick up, the, I'll pick up spirituality, I'll pick up the practice so I can have, a, so I can have life again. Because life is good. <laughs> okay? Just if you can manipulate things just enough, you will not experience exper uh, those, those, those kind of suffering that the people are talking about. Okay? Take care of your health, you won't have to you won't experience disease. Take care of your finances, you won't experience poverty. Uh, take care of the politics, you will not experience dictatorship in your country, something like that. Okay? As if these things are things that we can immediately have an effect on. There might be the appearance of it because of the condition where you are. Okay? You, happen to be in a, you happen to be in a country where it's kind of already kind of stable. You happen to be in a, in a born with kind of body, where it's kind of healthy, and if you maintain a certain level of lifestyle, you can keep it, keep it healthy. Okay? I mean, there, there are things that we can do to maintain health. There are things that we can do to maintain. I mean, there are things that we can do. We can't stop all day, so. Yeah. <laughs> there are things you can do to sort of slow it down or enjoy it when it gets there. Okay? And, and this is not denying that these things, that there are such things. It's not saying that Everyone who grows old becomes uh, experience terrible suffering. Doesn't mean that everyone who is born uh, is, has to have has to experience a disease, some sort of debilitating disease. That's not what it's saying. As a matter of fact, you could you could say it says, see the good things that you enjoy. There's a way to really have them and not lose them. And the method that you are using, you know, going to the spa and going to the health club, those methods don't are, are really going to work. So the person is trying to hold on to the good things. The person is appreciating the good things. The person wants to do something to, to maintain the good things, to get the good things. Just the method that they are using is not the method that's really going to get them what they're really aspiring to. And the sense of, uh, I'm throwing that holy being in there who sort of accept things. And there's a worldly way of accepting things. And it's just, mm, I'm going to say another harsh thing. <laughs> it's just a way of not going crazy. It's just keeping a way of keeping a lid, a, 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 a sort of like a, a band-aid, a psychological band-aid band -aid, so that you don't go crazy. Because if you really open your eyes, that's what this is saying, if you really open your eyes and see life for what it is, you will be disgusted. And this is not a disgust that you arrive at by throwing disgusting things at life and then you see life has been disgusted, disgusting. Sometimes people were trying to develop renunciation, that's what tend to do. They throw mud at life so they can see that life is ugly, that life is disgusting. What this is saying is that just open your eyes and you will see that you are living in a sewer, in a sewer. And that's what uh, uh, the, uh, that's the, some of the terms that the Buddha uses. 
Okay, samosa is a is is, is a pit of, and he uses the word <laughs> excrement. Okay, that's what it is. When you when you and and you can only see that if you really look into your the very nature of your being, that you by the very definition of being a being, you want good. And you don't want good that expires. Okay? We have the capacity, I mean, we've been living, existing for a very long time, putting up with a, a, a good that has expiration dates on them. But that's not the kind of good that we, we, are, we want. And there are some philosophies because they see the uh, 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 how very difficult it is to how very difficult to really see the real good, and they see that how this uh, this aspiration for the good continues continues in, uh, in in beings. So some philosophies try to squash that aspiration. They think that's, that's why you experience disappointment because you're looking for that real good. The reason that you're experiencing disappointment is you're looking for the real good where it doesn't exist. But the real good exists. Okay? And the methods that we've tried so far, the reason that they don't bring us that real good is because they don't work. So when you have a true appreciation, when you really look into the nature of your being and you see that you can't stop wanting the, the real good, and, and uh, um, this uh, very, uh, 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 this uh, teacher once said, we're talking about aspiration, expand aspiration is in the sense of aspiration is like a connection you make. Like a, you make a connection to the object of your, the energy or the emotion of aspiration is like a connection to the object that you're aspiring after. Okay, so the, the aspiration for the real good is like a connection, and so you could say somewhere within us, there is a seeing it. We know what it is, and when some when someone brings you something that says that's what it is. Because you have a vague idea of what it's supposed to be, you sort of examine it, you experience it. And the reason that you get to disappointment is because somewhere within you, it says, oh, that wasn't it. Okay. And you were hoping that it, was, that, that it would be it. So when you have that, uh, that uh, when you get into that realization that we are aspiring for good, and becomes clear to us, and we have a sense of what that good is supposed to be, then anything that pretends to be that good, that deceives you to make you think that you have found it, you develop a, 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 the natural feeling that you have for that is disgust. Okay. So the disgust, uh, the disgust, disgust, <laughs> disgusting feeling that you you have is not something that you have to force yourself to experience. Developing renunciation is not, it's not just 
no, I'm disgusted with life, I'm disgusted with life. It's not just forcing yourself to be disgusted, it's just open your eyes and see life for what it is. Rather than throwing projection on it and making it, uh, uh, seeing it for what you would like it to be, or trying to see it for what you would like it to be. And there's no need for you to throw mud on it, okay? In order for you to develop this, this uh, to, 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 uh, to be disgusted with it. It's already a source, uh, you know, a pit of its excrement. So, when you get to that point where you, uh, uh, there's a, well, it's not, we haven't reached it yet, but it's somewhere there. Uh, hmm. Where's that? When you've reached the point where you no longer crave for the apparent good things in life, is that you look at, uh, you look at life and it's, uh, uh, this, this kind of life and you sort of come to a realization where everything is like, a, you know, you're living in a pit of excrement. I I'm, I'm keep saying that out loud. <laughs> So everything that you see is just, you know, um, excrement, you know, uh, sculpted <laughs> to look different, okay? <laughs> and you're not, you're not fooled by the shape anymore. Oh, look at that car. No, it's just excrement, you know, shaped like a car. <laughs> okay. Hmm? 88? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's so, it's way down there. We're going to get to it. Maybe next year. <laughs> okay. All right. So let's see if we can uh, proceed a little bit further. The seers of the word in the olden days were making the same point when they used to say everybody's got some mystic being they're meditating about and everybody's got some mystic words that they're talking about and all because nobody's got any real practice they're thinking about. Everybody's got some mystic being they're meditating about. And everybody's got some mystic words that they're talking about. And all because nobody's got any real practice they're thinking about. So unless you, just like that paragraph above, unless you develop the three principal paths, no matter what you do, it's not spiritual practice. Unless you have some real insight or a, a, a real, take a, unless you've done a real look into what this kind of life, not life in general, not existence. It's not saying existence is, uh, uh, stinks. The Buddha didn't say existence is a pit of excrement and try to commit ultimate suicide where you extinguish yourself, extinguish your being. And that's supposed to be like the, uh, because there were some spiritual groups that believed that th th that was the goal of spirituality, to extinguish yourself from ex existence. So the Buddha wasn't saying existence. He said this kind of, ex of, of living, living this way. And since it is the only way that we know of, we might as well just say life. Life. And whenever you hear the word life, it's life as you know it. Is there life as you not know it, that you know of? <laughs> huh? 
Is there a life as you know it that you do not know of? <laughs> so when the Buddha, when you hear life uh, is suffering, it's not talking about the life that you don't know of that is blissful, is also suffering. What kind of life do you know? A life where you're prone to disease, a life where you're prone to uh, growing old, getting aged, a life where you're prone to dying, a life where you're prone to losing what, you, what, what, what brings you pleasure, a life where you're prone to meeting what, what uh, brings you suffering. That's the only life, that's what, that's, so far that's what life is. Life as we know it. Okay. But existence that includes, you know, Buddha's existences and our existence and existence of, uh, of suffering that we unimaginable suffering that we don't even know about yet. It's not the whole thing that the Buddha was referring to. So unless you, you have that kind of look into life, into existence, into this kind of life, I mean, and you see that you cannot get away from aspiring after the good, after what is really good. You cannot. The only way for you to not have that is for you to stop being a being. And Sorry, you're stuck with being a being for eternity. <laughs> you cannot come to a point in time where you cease to be, where you cease to exist altogether. Unfortunately, yes, you're forever. Being, you're, 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 being, you're being forever. And as you are being forever, you will forever aspire to the real good. So there's no way around, there's no way of avoiding it. Okay. So when you realize that, then you have to start making conscious effort at acquiring the real good. And that's, that's what you say is the spiritual life. The spiritual life is not, oh, let me please the Buddha, or the Buddha will, will punish me. Let me please this deity, or the deity will punish me. That's not what being spiritual means. It's really fulfilling the, the nature of your being consciously doing it. Then, once you have these attitudes, it doesn't matter what you do. Cooking breakfast becomes spiritual. Eating breakfast becomes spiritual. Walking in the park becomes spiritual. You don't need to have some mystical being to be meditating about. You don't need to have some mystic words to be talking about to be doing spirituality. And if, even if you find some mystic words, some mystic being, being to meditate and th talk about, if you're not doing it with those kind of attitudes, they're not spiritual at all. Even though you found them in, in what's called spiritual books. <laughs> so unless you develop the three attitudes of renunciation, 
bodhicitta and correct view. Even eating breakfast, making breakfast, eating breakfast becomes spiritual practice. And you don't really need some mystic being, some deity to be meditating on for you to become, for you to do, for you to be doing spiritual practice. You don't need some, pop, some mantra to, for you to be doing spiritual practice. When you, okay, I'll, I'll even say it this way. When you have those three attitudes, your words becomes mantra. When you don't have those attitudes, you can repeat every syllable exactly with the same intonation that the, the Buddha did, and it will, have, it will do nothing for you. The three attitudes, you mean the principal path? Yeah. So, when you're looking for some spiritual practice, this is it, the three principal path. Doing whatever you're doing with the three principal attitudes. That's, that's spiritual practice. Visualizing yourself as uh, a deity with a three million arms and, and perfectly holding that steady in your mind, and then reciting a bunch of syllables that has no meaning, that doesn't mean you're doing spiritual practice. And you can, or in the, and the other thing is, you can see yourself perfectly as some being with a million arms, reciting some words with no meaning, but because you have the three principal aspect in your mind, it becomes spiritual practice. Okay. So, don't blame the Lama. <laughs> if you go, if your friends uh, persuaded you to go take some initiation somewhere, and you were told that this is the highest practice ever on the planet, and you go home, and you're reciting the words, you're seeing yourself as, as whatever, and you still got problems. And you don't see any change in, 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 any change in, in, you, in, 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 in you yet. Don't blame the Lama. Therefore, those of us who are thinking about doing some really pure practice of the spirit should try to find one that will take us onto freedom and all-knowingness. And for a practice to be this way, it should make us masters of the three principal paths. These three are like the heart, the very life within the teachings on the steps to Buddhahood. We'll just finish this because... It's about to finish. As the all-knowing Lord Tsongkhapa once said, I use the lamp on the path as my basic text and made these three the very life of the path. So now we should, so that we ourselves will give just a brief teaching using the three principal path, the words, the same Lord Tsongkhapa as, uh, as a bishop. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so... Did Pamon Karimpoche uh, give you enough enthusiasm to, okay, let's read this book? I don't know, 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 I
it, it's his fault. <laughs> and his fault. That's entirely uh, Warren and Ryan. I didn't do anything. <laughs> okay. So I, uh, I'll tell you something, uh, student, stu student to student. Okay. <laughs> Uh, there is a, hmm. so after some time of uh, going to Wimbledon and, and Howell, there's so many Wimbledon you have to specify, uh, uh, Wimbledon and Howell. Uh, so he would give a teaching, he would give uh, explanations, give uh, examples, and then the, we have uh, initiations, and he would explain the initiation, explain the practice. And during, when he's no longer he's not teaching on the throne, I know when he's in his room, and students would go to him and ask him question, what should I do? I want to reach Buddhahood, what should I do? Not that, you know, uh, uh, my cat is dead and uh, I would like to say a prayer for him, uh, can you, or something like that, but no. I'm, I want to reach Buddhahood, please help me, uh, what, what should I do? And Rinpoche would say, <laughs> what do you think I've been teaching? What do you think? What do you think what, what, what do you think uh, was happening when, uh, you know, when I sat on the phone and I was uh, talking? What do you think I was talking about? Okay. There are a lot of students who, for some reason, uh, they don't feel that because they're in a room with you know, 20 other people or with three, uh, 100 other people, they think what's being said is not specifically for them. So I want to reach Buddhahood, but this is what is being said is for all the other, other people. So when this, when this is done, when there's a break, I'll go ask him for my, what's, what's, good, what's good for me. How do I get into to Buddhahood? Okay. How do I develop renunciation? No, what you said was just for everybody. Okay. It's almost, that's what we say, we are, we are, telling, we are telling them when we go to them and ask them for that, ask them for that question, ask that kind of question. And the reason I'm saying student to student is, uh, I guess, because I was somewhat uh, uh, I, I was with Rinpoche a bit longer, so Rinpoche would somewhat confide in me, these kinds of things. Okay. See. When when these students would go to Rinpoche and ask him that kind of question, he would, mm, should I say it? Um, he was uh, wholly, <laughs> he was wholly annoyed. <laughs> 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 but you know, 
I would say, uh, you know, unfortunately for us, uh, perhaps some of us, the reason that we come to having to go and ask these uh, questions like that is because every time a different teaching, first of all, there's different, different teachings given. And every time a te different teaching is being introduced, it, you'll be, you, you, it's introduced, this is the most important thing in the world. Nothing is better than this. Forget about everything else. And you have like 10 very important teachings, which are the most important teaching, which nothing else, you should, which you shouldn't do anything else other than that. So you get confused, of course. Which, okay, which one should I do? <laughs> I can't do all 10 at the same time. So yeah, in that situation, yeah. But you know, the general question I was referring to, okay, all right, what should I do now? What, what should I do? That kind of question. And, and, and I think it probably comes from when you, uh, you hear the uh, very idealistic uh, setting. It's just you and the teacher, you're traveling together, and then every once in a while he tells you something to do, and then you do it, and you get some incredible realization. And these things are very rare, and I, I, they don't, if they're happening nowadays, it's, you know, they're almost unknown. Nowadays, the way you get teaching is in a class with a bunch of other people together. And it seems like you're not in that idealistic setting. It seems like the teaching is not meant for you specifically. And you feel the need to ask for your specific teaching. And sometimes this comes from a, sometimes it comes from a genuine sense. I'm not saying that the genuine, uh, that you don't really want something to get you to Buddhahood. You want it. It comes from that. But it's to recognize that when you are in a, a teaching, even though there are a thousand other people there, what is being said is you have to take it as being specifically for you. You have a question what you, what you must do, that's what you must do. And there's also the, the sense of different people, because of the, the different inclination, may hear the teaching a slightly different way. And maybe the reason you hear it a slightly different way, and that's your little, what do you say? Uh, little twig, little no, not twig. What's that? Twist. Twist. That's your little tw twist. Mm -hmm. I thought it was no. It's, it's ended with a uh, no. little twink. Tweak. Tweak. <laughs> That's your little tweak of the teaching that was geared just for you. Because as you are hearing it, your whatever you have is sort of that word with the ink at the end is <laughs> for you, it's, 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 it's uh, inking it for you, okay? 
That's why our notes all look different. <laughs> <laughs> because there are certain things that you're, you're concerned about that are specific to you that, that when, when you, hear, you pay special attention and you write the notes concerning that. That's, and so that's your special teaching. I think Rinpoche looks on Tarchin also mm. say that um, there's a certain special quality that's imbued in teaching when they're on the throne. And that, that, that teachers, alumnus will sometimes you know, prefer that whatever they say on the throne be the thing that the students take to heart rather than when they're sitting in their, their room because they're not on the throne. Yeah. So they'd rather have us remember what they teach us when they're actually teaching the group from the throne mm -hmm. because, they're, because, the, because they're more, because the explanations are better, they're more precise, they're, they're more inspired. Uh, so they kind of worry about what they might say when they're, when they're just sitting in their room. Uh, the, uh, the, the other explanation also is that uh, a, a more mystical, mysterious explanation. You may not, I'm, I'm putting those words in front of it because to take it with a grain of salt, okay? Why do they say take it with a grain of salt, anyway? I mean, it would taste, good, it would taste better, right? <laughs> uh, before the teacher sits on the throne, the teacher makes an invocation. So as far as the teacher is concerned, uh, it's not just the regular old personality who is no, who, who, uh, any longer on that run. Uh, your particular Buddha, your particular spiritual teacher, you could say, is using that personality, that form, to speak to you. Mm -hmm. okay. so that's why you say uh, what they say on the throne is more uh, inspiring, more ins it's more inspired. Okay. Just one, one other thing about the, the personal relationship aspect. Mm -hmm. I think there's one thing that, from what the people I've spoken to who had a chance to you know, travel with, with llamas mm -hmm. and be in the company of, you know, be with the Dalai Lama when he was mm -hmm. doing something, what they say, it's never, it's never you know, that, that, that those beings give some kind of little secret inside tip that, that helps them. It's, it's, it's just being able to observe them being able to see them in ordinary, even ordinary situations, being able to see them when they're under stress and how they respond to it, being able to see how a, a living Buddha will deal with ordinary situations can, ins can inspire you. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, um, and then the... the and I'm sure you have sort of, you know, seen Ken Rinpoche in different situations. Yeah. And the most uh, ordinary words that they say becomes very powerful for you. Yeah. yeah. <coughs> All right. Whew, wow, really went over this time. Um, 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 um. Pre uh, closing prayers. Before we say that, we recite the English. Here's the ground with incense and flowers strewn. Sanyeru, four continents, sun and moon. Visualize as a Buddha field. 
I will offer this to the matter of field. May all beings partake of this supreme Idam Guru Radnamandala Kamiyatayami Gyawati Kyawakun Sanam Yeshe Zogzoshin Sanam Yeshe Lechongwe Tambakunye by this virtue, all beings perfect the accumulations of the marriage of wisdom, may achieve the two holy bodies that arise from marriage and wisdom. Of course, that is not to say you should, you should never go and ask for clarification. Sometimes you better go and ask for clarification. It means that you are practicing, you are putting into practice what was said. Because they're waiting for you sometimes to come ask some specific questions. Okay. Certain, there are certain, certain, you could say there are certain things that are not said on the throne. Uh, okay. <laughs> we take a break for about, uh, and then we'll come back after. Okay. <laughs> When you feel the call, I'll stay here. <laughs> okay.